tonight, remembering Borea Salming, heartfelt tributes for a global hockey hero. The Leafs legend who carved a crucial path. In the 70s, the game was different. His legacy on and off the ice. One of my all-time favorites. The game plan for Team Canada for Sunday's World Cup match. Just, you know, making sure everybody's locked in and focused. And new fallout over the forbidden One Love armbands. Plus, the push to remove racial bias from the badge. We have to find a way to build those bridges. Montreal's next police chief and a new vision of inclusion. CTV National News with Omar Sachedina, reporting tonight from Doha. Sports is bringing the world together here in Qatar on a night where we remember a sporting legend. Good evening, everyone. We begin tonight with the death of a trailblazer who came to Canada and helped make hockey a more international game by breaking down borders and barriers. Borea Salming was born in Sweden but made his mark in Toronto. He was remembered today for his determination on the ice and his courage in his fight with ALS. Borea Salming was 71. CTV's John Vanavelli Rao on an inspiring life of a player known as the King. Please welcome number 21, Borea Salming. Less than two weeks ago, this was the incredibly powerful and poignant scene as Leafs fans gave a two-minute standing ovation for Borea Salming, taking to center ice, struggling with ALS, unable to speak, but he didn't have to. You could easily tell what that moment meant to him. So many now stunned, the hockey grade is gone. It's a terrible disease. At least now he's not uh, not hurting uh, that way anymore. Salming was a defensive legend who in the early 1970s was the NHL's first European star. He was born in Karuna, Sweden and became a pioneer for Europeans in the league. Very sad, obviously. Um, it's a legend in Sweden and uh, just a guy that paved the way for a lot of guys from Europe. He was incredibly determined and had to get used to a more physical game at a time when it was tough to be an outsider. He took a lot of abuse. Borea was a target, uh, and uh, lots of nights the other players were very mean and nasty uh, to him, uh, spearing him, but Borea, he rose to the occasion. Over 16 seasons, he played in more than 1,000 games for the Leafs, and in 1996 became the first Swede inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame. When they call me, I was actually crying because I've done so much. Just five years ago, in his mid-60s, he could be seen dancing in the stands. But earlier this summer, he announced he had ALS. In October, he and his wife shared with a Swedish news outlet what it was like living with the nervous system disease. And just a week ago, he got another standing ovation at a Swedish Hockey Association gala. In pain, but true to character, powering through it. And tonight, people have been coming by the statue of Salming in Toronto, dropping off flowers and paying their respects to a player who made a huge mark on a city and a sport. Omar. One who leaves behind an incredible and lasting legacy. John, thank you for this tonight. And a player who has made an impact on the game of soccer added to his legacy today. It's Ronaldo. 
With that goal, Cristiano Ronaldo of Portugal became the first man to score in five different World Cups, equaling a mark set by Brazil's Marta and Canada's Christine Sinclair. Team Canada is now looking ahead to its next game on Sunday. While off the field, anger is growing over FIFA's move to ban an inclusive armband. CTV's Heather Wright reports. The final whistle goes. The better team may not have won yesterday, but Canada is moving forward. We know how how well we performed, um, but it's another game coming against a very good opponent. That opponent is Croatia, and today coach John Herdman clarified the comments he made yesterday. I told them they belong here, and we're going to go and F Korea, Croatia. Saying he didn't intend to be disrespectful. I mean, no disrespect to uh, the Croatian team and Croatian people, but at the end of the day, it's a mindset that Canada's going to have to have if we're going to have three points against one of the top teams in the world. Herdman also declined to weigh in on FIFA's ban of rainbow armbands. And there was also no comment from Minister of International Development Harjit Sajjan, who has been criticized for visiting Qatar and not speaking out on human rights. Unlike Belgium's foreign minister, who wore the armband in support of members of the LGBTQ2S plus community. Carrie Serwetnik is a former member of Canada's women's soccer team and is a gay woman. She says the armbands symbolize an important conversation being had in a place where it's still illegal to be gay. We live in a society, like in Canada, where people do have these freedoms, but it didn't just happen. It's from the work of all kinds of amazing leaders who were brave enough to have these changes happen. Today, Denmark slammed FIFA's decision to ban the armband, saying it's harmed the game of football. In my opinion, there's no problem with the armband. It's signaling a universal uh, right to love whoever you want to love. Germany's Football Association is going one step further, launching a legal challenge to FIFA's decision, hoping to overturn the ban by the end of the tournament. Omar. Still 23 days to go in this tournament. Heather Wright in Doha tonight. Migrants living on the margins make up 95% of the workforce here in Qatar. And this World Cup has intensified the global spotlight on the vulnerable, who risk everything for a chance at a better life. On the northern coast of France, dozens of asylum seekers in Calais have died in their struggle to get to the other side. Here's CTV's Danielle Hamamjan. The sun's going down and the wind is picking up on a beach overlooking the English Channel. By now, it's clear. The smugglers collecting money from these Afghan and Iranian men will not be taking them to the UK tonight. Tomorrow, tomorrow after. You think maybe tomorrow? I don't know, but tomorrow. And you've got the money to cross? Uh, money, yes, normal. Oh, it's Three, beginning. zero, zero, zero. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Is that what they told you? Yes. 3,000 euros. Yeah. Among those scattered in makeshift camps in the port city of Calais are some who would be eligible for refugee status once they reach the UK. But the problem is getting there legally, especially if they're from an African country. Hundreds have died trying to cross, but so far this year, 40,000 migrants have made it in small boats. A record number the minister in charge described as an invasion. Yet this week, she struggled to answer basic questions. If you put in your application for asylum uh, upon arrival, that would uh, be the, the process that you enter. How could I arrive in the UK if I didn't have permission to get onto an aircraft legally to arrive in the UK? Uh, let me just invite other colleagues if there's anything they want to add. 
You need a ticket for food? Uh, yeah? Okay. Charity worker Lucy Halliday spends many of her mornings making sure asylum seekers have something to eat. We need to open safe and legal passages like we did for Ukraine. Um, we've proved that it's possible. We've proved that the UK isn't full. We can take more people and we can open safe passages so that no one needs to risk their life um, on a small boat crossing the channel. This camp here is full of young men from Sudan. One of the guys behind me is just 17 years old. He's been here for months. Trying to cross by boat is not an option. It's just simply too expensive. So what they're likely to do is try to sneak their way onto the back of a truck. The cold is creeping in and the rain only adds to the misery. But there's warmth in the presence of one Abdul Sabur. Once a mechanical engineer in Afghanistan, then a desperate migrant, today a Paris-based photographer. I try my best to document and tell their story, but sometimes it's a bit um, sad. The situation is always the same. Nothing is changing and nothing's getting uh, better. I feel very powerless. 30 kilometers separates them from their final destination. For many, the risk of dying along the way is still better than what they left behind. Daniel Hamamjin, CTV News, Calais, France. In war, it's the innocent who pay the price. And tonight in Ukraine, the collapse of the power grid from what Kyiv calls energy terrorism has millions of people in the dark and struggling to stay warm. CTV's chief international correspondent Paul Workman reports. Russia's military claims it did not do this, did not aim a single missile towards Ukraine's capital during its latest airborne onslaught. Tell that to Nina Vlasiuk as she swept up debris in her suburban apartment block and went looking for water where there was none. The first explosion was very loud, she says. After the second, the house started shaking. I covered my child until it was over. Tell it as well to this 70-year-old pensioner, forced to stand in line at a city water supply to fill her bottle and take it home to a freezing apartment. Everyone agrees it's better to be cold and starving, she says, as long as it's without the Russians here. This is what Ukraine looks like at night from a NASA satellite, as dark as the Black Sea. And inside an operating room, just after Russian bombs cut off the power. This is how we perform open-heart surgery now, says the lead doctor, wearing headlamps. Generators kept the lights on at this children's hospital, where doctors went ahead with risky and critical surgery on a three-month-old baby. This morning, I decided to do urgent operation, despite of bloody Russian bombing, despite uh, the most terrible situation that I ever seen in my surgical life. Blackout or no blackout, timing was essential, said the surgeon, and the parents agreed. I explained it to parents that we have a choice not to do nothing and baby will die or to give a chance. The operation was successful, he said. The baby is in stable condition and with hope will survive. Since early October, Russia has fired 600 missiles at Ukraine with devastating effect on its water and power supplies 
And for the first time, these latest strikes knocked all of the country's nuclear power stations offline, Omar. First full winter of this war just around the corner. All right, Paul Workman in London tonight. Paul, thank you. And reflecting back on last winter, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland revealed new details today about the pressure to end the convoy occupation of Ottawa. CTV's senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor has the key points of her testimony. The Deputy Prime Minister came to testify about her deep concern over the long-term effects the protests were having on Canada's most important economic relationship. Every single hour, more damage is done to American confidence in us as a trading partner. With big rigs blocking key border crossings, Christian Freeland spoke by phone with top White House economic advisor Brian Deese, who worried about severed supply chains crucial to the auto industry. At a time, Canada was trying to convince the Biden administration to back off a protectionist measure for electric vehicle manufacturing. The Americans having this amber light flashing in Canada and this amber light that said to them, you know what? the Canadian supply chain could be a vulnerability. Freeland also spoke with the chief executives of the big banks who were nervous about the convoy's effect on foreign investment. One banker told her he just heard from a potential investor who now considered Canada a banana republic. She defended measures that accompanied the Emergencies Act to freeze bank accounts of protesters, leaving some unable to buy groceries or medication. An imperfect incentive, she said, to get people to leave, but better than using force. A virtue of these measures was no blood on the face of a child, um, no physical coercion required. The Prime Minister will be the last witness testifying tomorrow. Today, Justin Trudeau's top aide described discussions within government about negotiating with protesters, an idea later scrapped. No one could figure out who they should talk to. There was no clear leadership on the other side. There was no clear understanding of what they would even be talking about. The commission will produce its report on the use of the Emergencies Act by February 20th, around the same time some protest organizers are planning a return to Ottawa for a second Freedom Convoy. Omar. All right, Glenn, we'll see what the Prime Minister has to say tomorrow. Time for a short break, but when we come back... There's all kinds of things happening right now that seem to be a little bit worse than they've been in the past. A billion dollars to boost Canada's resiliency in a climate crisis, plus the tale of two World Cup trophies. Here in Qatar, FIFA has declared this the first carbon-neutral World Cup. Although with air-conditioned stadiums built in a desert, opinions are divided on that claim. The climate is already in crisis, and today Ottawa announced a strategy to adapt. CTV's Atlantic Bureau Chief Kreese Najgate on the blueprint with the billion-dollar-plus price tag. She's coming down. This home security footage of Rhonda McDonald's farm in BC captures the moment a massive mudslide buried her hayfield in mud and debris. There were boulders that came down and massive, massive trees. The McDonald's have experienced loss 37 cattle to a wildfire in 2021, seven acres of land by flooding last November, and this mudslide in August, the third natural disaster to hit the ranch in just over a year. It took us a lifetime to build it and 373 days to destroy it. 
Experts say extreme weather events will become more common as climate change continues to impact the planet. We're going to experience more severe and more variable precipitation events, and that affects flooding. Today in PEI, the federal government announced the country's first climate adaptation strategy, where two months ago, post-tropical storm Fiona caused $660 million in damages across Atlantic Canada. I believe that Prince Edward Island, as we rebuild from the devastation of, of Fiona, will benefit significantly from these investments. The plan offers $1.6 billion in new spending over five years, with the goal to improve key infrastructure, prepare communities impacted by extreme weather, and provide more resources for disaster preparedness and wildfire management. Both the NDP and the Green Party say the Liberal strategy is too little too late. We need much more ambition here to really do some meaningful things to prepare. They're not serious about reducing emissions. Experts also say that all three levels of government would need to spend at least $5 billion annually to achieve real climate adaptation. Chris Nachkate, CTV News, Halifax. And there is a stark warning tonight for parents from the Canadian Pediatric Society. Limit your baby's screen time. Screens are not helpful for children zero to two in any way and can be detrimental to their language development, their social development. The only exceptions, supervised video chats and virtual story time. Good reminder. And still ahead tonight. I did some racial profiling and I already admit that I was victim of racial profiling. A blunt bottom line from Montreal's next top cop. We are learning more tonight about the new man who is taking charge of Montreal's police force. He is an immigrant who is already vowing to do things differently. Quebec Bureau Chief Genevieve Beauchemin explains. Montreal's next police chief, Fadi Daguerre, set his sights today on a problem years of promises have failed to curb across the country. I did some racial profiling and I already admit that I was victim of racial profiling. So when you, t when, you tell, when you tell me about the distance and the, the trust, the mistrust between the community and the police, I understand that. Daguerre is of Lebanese descent, born in Ivory Coast. He will be the first Montreal top cop born outside Canada. They're going to be on the beat and on bikes. No cars. Daguerre started out at the Montreal police and has 30 years of experience. The last five at the helm of the force in Longueuil on the south shore of Montreal. Bonjour. Bonjour. He implemented an innovative approach that attracted attention nationwide. Immersing part of his troops in the daily lives of those they serve to build bridges. Go in the community, stay with them, smell the, the food, go to the grocery with them, see what's happening with the young autism in the Costco when he have a crisis, how the mother control him. He says he won't cut and paste that approach in his new job in a larger city with different needs, but plans to foster the spirit of building connections. Those are welcome words to some fighting racial profiling. A 2019 report found Montreal police officers were four to five times more likely to street check black and indigenous people. Some folks in the community expect, again, the messiah to come in and, and uh, resolve all things and racial profiling would somehow magically disappear, and that's not going to happen. 
So he's got his work cut out for him, but he's the right person for the job at this particular point in time. Daguerre's nomination is to be confirmed by the province in weeks to come. Geneviève Beauchemin, CTV News, Montreal. And before we go to break, we want to take you to Lake Erie and a portrait worthy of Poseidon. Yes, that's a massive wave that looks like a face. Ontario photographer Cody Evans clicked this pic last weekend during that lake effect snowstorm. And he took 10,000 snapshots that day. But there can only be one winner. After the break, Cup Chronicles from Doha. Welcome back to Qatar, where 32 nations are in the hunt for the coveted World Cup. The winning team's name will be forever etched on a trophy that has a very fascinating backstory. Hoisting one of the sporting world's most sought-after prizes is a tangible reminder of a dream and the faith, sweat, and tenacity it takes to accomplish it. This current version of the trophy was first awarded in 1974 after 53 design submissions from seven countries, an Italian artist beat out the rest. 75% of its weight is 18 karat gold, 6.175 kilograms, which at today's market rate would put the value of the precious metal alone at more than $345,000 Canadian. But the value is more than just financial. In fact, during the Second World War, there was so much concern about the previous version of the trophy, named after Jules Rimet, the former FIFA president who was instrumental in creating the World Cup tournament, it was removed from a bank vault and kept in a shoebox under the bed of a FIFA vice president. Two decades later, another scare. Just four months before the 1966 World Cup in England, the trophy disappeared from a display cabinet at Methodist Central Hall in Westminster, there was an urgent intervention by Scotland Yard, a national hunt to locate the thief. But in the end, it was Pickles the dog that came to the rescue. The four-year-old black-and-white collie sniffed out a package wrapped with newspapers under a car in the neighborhood a week after the theft. And while the owner, David Corbett, was temporarily questioned by police, he had an alibi. And both he and Pickles were invited to a celebration banquet after England beat Germany on home soil at the World Cup that year in Wembley Stadium. In a 2018 interview, Corbett reflected on his celebrity canine. Yeah, he's, well, he's the finest sports dog in the world, you know. Lassie, get out. He's top dog. Top dog indeed. And in case you were wondering, that original trophy was stolen a second time in 1983 in Brazil and was never recovered. It's believed it was melted down into gold bars. And that is a snapshot of this Thursday. I'm Omar Stachadina. For all of us at CTV National News here in Doha and back in the National Newsroom, thank you for watching. Good night and see you tomorrow. Five crucial questions to expose the truth. Who's at risk? What needs to change? When will justice be done? There was actually a plot to kill you. Where's the proof? Why did this happen? Watch W5 Saturdays at 7 on CTV.